We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And I like it, 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 I like, I like, here we go. Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe, this is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name's Alex Fiddick, Blackman, Twitter, Yankee, Gunner, hello, ready? We won. We won a football match. We dominated a football match. We won it comfortably, 2-0. Last goal didn't count. I'm not counting it. You know what? My attitude is if we can't get any calls, then they can't get any goals. How about that? That's a trade-off. They can't have their shitty goal. We can't have any of our calls. It all balances out. We're going to celebrate, luxuriate in what I think was a dominant performance. A dominant performance that I I would say mostly thoroughly enjoyed. And I I will admit, right, because I find hating my rivals to be nearly as fun as celebrating the team I love, the Spurs result really bothered me. But I think it triggered something important in me, something maybe in all of us that was missing. Do you, like me, suffer from an affliction? An affliction I like to call struggling to hate Manchester City? I've wanted to hate Manchester City. I just have never been able to connect with hating Manchester City at the level that I feel I should. Well, I must say that getting zero points from Spurs, off Spurs this season, has tipped me over the edge to hating Manchester City, an utterly worthless pile of crap that was expensively assembled and achieves next to nothing. I mean, you know, Premier League titles aside, next to nothing. So, Yeah, this has tipped me over the edge and I think led me down a path. I needed to go a long time ago into hating Manchester City properly. So that's good. Um, Yeah, we're going to dive into this win. I will let you know. Uh, So it's great. There was a fantastic instant reaction for patrons uh, for this for this um, game, but I was away. And so I just did a little couple minutes at the beginning and then turned it over to Paul and Scott and Clive and they had some technical issues with the audio, and as a result, a lot of people are like, oh, Elliot, we need you back. And I like it because what they don't know is that I actually uh, triggered these technical issues. I was I was in there like a gremlin, intentionally causing them so people would miss me. So that was a good thing that I did over the weekend. In any event, enough about that. We'll let you know that we're going to have um, a, a rewatch of this game, of course, for patrons. We're also going to have a midfielder manifesto with Adam Ray Vogie and Scott on Wednesday as well. So that's coming up. But let's talk about this game with Clive. You can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello there, Clive. Hello, hello. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. So pause. Woohoo! Jesus, you're in uh, you're in fine form. 
Well, I, I mean, I, I got away a little bit. I got some beautiful um, mountain air. Uh, I, got, I got some good alcohol into me, all the things needed to restore the heart and soul. Uh, I got an arsenal win. And uh, did you know that you were the victim of sabotage, that I intentionally sabotaged your recording so that people would, would think that actually they missed me when really it was just the gremlins in the machine? I did not know it at the time, but it does seem to all make sense now. It all adds up, doesn't it? Yes, kind of like the PGMOL uh, campaign against Arsenal. It all it all makes sense now. And I have to admit, you know, I don't like the conspiracies. You know, I fought hard against right. them, but I am I am starting to believe. I'm beginning to believe the truth is out there, as a famous show once said. Um, Clive, I'm going to say it like this: the the first half of this game, and you know, we dominated this game, and I think it's easy to forget. We've kind of been dominating league games, period. The Wolves game away, we did okay. That's a hard game. And then we went down to 10 men. City, we went down to 10 men after playing really well. But like we dominated Burnley. We dominated Leeds. We dominated West Ham and we dominated Southampton. And, you know, th- there were a lot of games in there that we dominated. It's just those cup ties kind of made us forget. And this, this, I think, was the apotheosis of the football we've been trying to play. And so the first half for me came down to three things, really. It came down to dominating possession failing to make quite the right decision with the final ball, the the decision that needed to be made to get that goal that our play deserved, and then refereeing decisions that were really head-scratching. Those were really the three for me. But I want to start with the dominance. Clive, it is, maybe it was always the plan, maybe we've always been moving towards it. We've seen times when he flirted with it, but I do think that this system, that the way we are now setting up, allows us to keep the ball in the areas we want to keep it and really push teams back. And this is the kind of football that can pick up a lot of points because... You're not trying to edge it. You're not trying to nick it. You're really dominating teams. And even with no goals at halftime, I felt really comfortable because the way we were playing, I felt was repeatable and ultimately would lead to the goals we needed. And the person pulling the strings in all this was really Martin Odegaard, who, you know, I, I know you've you've had your eye on him and I'm sure he'll be frustrated with the shot he took. And, you know, not if Tim were here, he'd be screaming about him not using his, his right foot to slide it across to Pepe or to take the shot when he slid it to Saka. But... For me, the story of this half and our dominance flows through Martin Odegaard and the way he he just had the ball on a string and was and was pulling all the strings first in the final third. Yeah, I've had my eye on him for for exactly what happened the other day, actually, um, <laughs> because he didn't take the shot, and yeah. that was my yeah. thing with him. It's not his play. You know, I went as I said to him on a previous podcast. I was just watching the the sort of possession game in the warm up, and you, I'm watching it thinking, "Oh my goodness, you're the best player in the team." Uh, literally, is he was doing everything, and I'm thinking, crikey! And the game started, and he continued to be the best player of the team, and and he has that vibe of I am the man, I'm leading us, I'm getting us forward, I'm gonna I'm gonna set the tone. Now you can debate if he's the best player; we all have our favourites, but he is the the guy that everyone gives the ball to, and very comfortable giving the ball to him, and then he gets out of it, and we're off and running. So he has really grown massively on me, you know, because. It wasn't so long ago and we were having a Madison-Odegaard debate and I was pretty cool whichever way it fell. Now I'm thinking, crikey, I'm so glad we've gone this direction. You know, there's no debate for me. Both really good players. One cost 30, one would have cost 55, 60. One, it really seems to fit the club. And really, for the big thing for me recently, Elliot, and to touch on your point, is where we're playing, not just how we're playing. Mm-hmm. It's where we're playing. And everything's pushed up a little bit more. And I know we had the period where we lost to our midfielders and Odegaard had to drop deeper. But if you just think back to that Everton game and where we played, 
positionally on the pitch. Forget all the passing, it's where we're playing. We just played into their hands, let us press us in our final third and just were rubbish. Now we're far more aggressive, far more direct when we need to just push people back to get them where we want them so we can play our football. In the end, we still scored two transition goals, but the territory we had was really, really good and the intelligence by which we play is good. I think most of the uh, type of people that listen to his podcast can see how we're playing really clearly. And that's a good thing. We've debated how we played for so many years and who's doing what. Now we can all see our shape. We can all see the the combinations. We can all see the, the pods and the groups of players playing together. We can see their attributes. And it's like, oh, okay. There's almost hardly anything to argue about, apart from the fact we probably need a new centre forward and a new centre mid. But that's it. And who's going to play? I mean, this is small, small issues that we're discussing at the moment. And that tells me we're going somewhere. The things we used to discuss were seismic issues. Now we're we're talking semantics and details. And they don't really matter after a 2-1 thrashing, which this game was, right? So the word you used there was sustainability. And I think the way we're playing is very sustainable and repeatable. And that's the key to all of this. If you look around at some of our rivals who are far more maybe a bit more spectacular on certain days, but they're far more erratic. And I think that will come out during the um, the rest of the season, he says, hopefully. Yeah, and, and what it does is it brings the small space players to life. So players like Saka and Smith-Rowe and Odegaard, you know, really can come to life in those little pockets of space. And just, you know, Thomas Party. I mean, it, he's... I think he's really taken to this role. I, I I don't think he's getting the credit he deserves because he really is holding down the entire center of the pitch and the way he has to choose when to step past a marker, when to step past pressure, and the way that switches immediately you know, into a numerical advantage and, and an attacking advantage is brilliant. We've created these pods, right? On the right, you have the fullback. In this case, Cedric. You know, Eventually, will be Tomiyasu again, although Cedric definitely deserves credit. Cedric, <clears throat> um, Saka, and... And Odegaard, and on the left, right now it's it's Shaka, and in this game it was Smith Rowe and Tierney. And those triangles right on the edge of the area, opening a lot of things up. I know there were a bunch of crosses, but there were also a bunch of opportunities to play through central spaces where I think we just maybe missed the pass. There were 24 shots in this game. We're playing in the right part of the pitch. And so, Paul, the next thing that has to come is that final ball decision making. And I think there is a, you know, maybe it's the the FIFA video game mentality. You know that when you're when you're playing FIFA, that lock is that pass to either Saka or Smith. Uh, I guess it would have been yeah, to Saka or Smith. Rowe, like that's easy. You just make it and it's a goal. And that Odegaard pass across to Pepe is a goal. And the Odegaard shot that he should take on his right is a goal because it's very easy to do. The reality is these final balls are the hardest part of football, and that's why teams don't routinely score five, six, seven in a game because most of these opportunities do go begging. The point of playing in this part of the pitch and dominating territory is instead of creating two of those moments, missing them, and then saying, oh, you know, we're chokers, we don't convert in the final moment. You create 15 of those moments, and you take two of them. And, you know, that's what was happening earlier in the season when we're talking about, oh, you can't miss a sitter. You know, Eddie cost us the game with the header against Everton. When you're creating just two or three openings a game, you really put so much pressure that you have to convert them. And now we're creating seven, eight, nine, ten. But I'm curious how you see that sort of composure that we need in the final moment. Because if I look, especially in that first half, there's a lot of little moments where 
Should Odegaard take it on his right instead of sliding it to Saka? Should Lacazette feed it into Saka or Smith-Rowe instead of the snapshot? Players taking snapshots. And I think that pressure of knowing, maybe reading the headlines too much of, do Arsenal have the goals in them? Do they need to buy a striker? Is feeding into a little bit of lack of composure with the final ball. Because everything up until that is is really, really humming along nicely now. Yeah. Um, So I used to talk a lot about toothpaste because... Our frustration, for uh, certainly for me, was our good play was all in the final or in our back third. Good news, Paul. It's all out of the tube. It's on the brush now. (laughs) You don't have to talk about it anymore. (laughs) Well, it's on the brush, but it's a bit messy. (laughs) And this is a good problem, right? We are now starting to live in the final third, uh, in the box, but not. we haven't quite learn to live around the six-yard box. So to your point, the decision-making, these are young guys who haven't done this season in, season out, um, but they're now getting to spend more and more time in the most pressurized zone of the pitch where decisions, like every... We talk about movement of strikers. So you're Smith-Rowe, you're coming in on the left with the ball, you look up, uh, you get ready to take your pass, you look up again, Suddenly, everybody's taking a different position. Defenders are jumping out. Uh, a striker's making the run off the shoulder. He, you know, he's going one way. If he's trying to fool his defender, like he's also effectively fooling you. So these guys are learning the patterns uh, of play within the box in the zone of the pitch in which you have the shortest reaction time. I always remember uh, RVP. Um, back in the day, Van Persie, and they had some thing they did. I think it was like in a, a summer tour thing where they measured everybody's reaction times uh, within the Arsenal football team. And Van Persie had the quickest reaction times. And he was kind of chuffed about this, which is kind of childish. It was kind of video game stuff that they were measuring. and uh, But he thought it was a big deal because strikers need the fastest reactions and that area the pitch is the area and it's been measured and scientifically there like that's all about speed of mind speed of thought and um, i think it's very interesting that it, particularly today there's the comments from arteta about smith row being able to play in multiple positions and potentially as a nine false nine kind of thing you look at, over there at manchester city you look at what diogo jota does as that extra player, and maybe we've got a bit of Diogo Jota in Emil Smith role, role. And so coming back to your point about decisions in the box, like these guys are just learning to live there, and Smith Rowe's a really quick, decisive, one touch, make a decision, but like those are highly pressurized uh, short moments, and I think we're we'll get better and better at this the more and more of it we do. Like, to your point, we haven't been a dominant team under Arteta in terms of possession. We've normally been below 50% across the season, and now that's starting to change. We're living in the final third. We're living in and around the box. Um, We're making those decisions more and more often, developing those patterns, um, and I think it's going to get better and better. Like, I was pretty frustrated with the first half. I thought there was a lot of good good play but when i went back and look at it um like your point is the right point there were just a few decisions 
that weren't quite right. Everything else was great. We fucking battered them. Mm -hmm. We were all over them basically for 45 minutes and the goal was coming and, you know, they get tired. And the other thing I noticed was like our pod on the right was very good. But when I went and looked at our pod on the left, the Chaka thing, like this was a game in which he was relieved of the role he used to play of having to cover behind Tierney. Tierney was doing that job. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that too. A little more and inside, deeper yeah. left instead of overlapping. And Smith Rowe yeah. wasn't the usual Smith Rowe job on the left, where he comes in as kind of an inside forward. He kind of we we kind of rotate. No, he was doing the Martinelli job. He was, I wouldn't say staying wide, but staying wide and coming in, making Martinelli type decisions for us. Um, and Chanka was very clearly and decidedly that attacking 8-10. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at it again, he was a bit better than I thought he had been on the day. It was actually, given that he didn't have to cover back and do other things and kind of uh, be the fill-in for Tierney, I think that left side was actually pretty good. Um, final decision-making, not so much. And it just led to, we absolutely battered them. And they pretty much couldn't get us on the counter because we had our two fullbacks were... Uh, normal teams fullbacks might be um and the attacking players did their thing and i think we'll get better and better at it the more Mm. we get to do it you know kind of in the way that like bukayo saka looks good wherever you play him and when he had to play left back he looked good there because he's just a good player and he's not going to look bad anywhere because he's pretty technically clean i think granite shack is one of those classic examples like a good solid pro who even if he's not your cup of tea or great anywhere he doesn't look bad anywhere because he's he's just good enough to do so like do I think Granite Chaka is an eight, a left eight? I don't. Does he look okay as a left eight in our system because he's a good, solid professional who can handle the role? He does. And so, you know, he's it, a better left works. eight than I thought he was going to be. I was yeah, well, for nothing. I, I will say this too. I also think in the Wolves game, we played a little too much through that pod. And what I liked in this game is we did get more to the right side and we, we let Odegaard pull the strings more. And when you see the way Odegaard plays that role versus how Shaq is playing it, you do see the difference in what you can get from someone who just wants to be in small spaces and dummies and flicks and back heels. Now, you know, Odegaard needs to add what we discussed earlier, but but let's not be redundant. You do. I'll tell you what I was very pleased with. He did, like we always think of him uh, passing up the wing or spinning up the mm. Like he did a lot of clever passes in field. Uh, you know, it's all relative, right? But I was kind of surprised about how he opened up his game yeah. a bit, no, which I, was kind of pleasing. I think it's working. You know, whether it's going to work in the, in the more challenging games, we'll find sure. out. I, I think... Well, so the one thing I'll say that I think is ironic is you're starting to hear increasing calls for things like Smith Rowe at False Nine um, from more people trying to sort of, quote unquote, solve the issue in the center of our attack. And what I think is ironic is Smith Rowe at False Nine is one of the decisions that Arteta was most pilloried for in his time here, obviously against Villarreal in the semifinal of the the, uh, Europa League. That's the thing. And like, fair play to him. Please, yep, mm -hmm. I was just going to say one other irony is we might be trying to solve a problem we don't actually have. I hear you. We'll, we'll come on to it. Yeah. Um, so, well, Clive, let me get your take just on the, on that one little piece that we were discussing with Paul there for the last 10, 15 minutes, and then, uh, and then we'll move forward. But like, what do you think is the right way to analyze our sort of, I don't want to use the word issue in this game, but the, the challenge of converting more, of these good situations into end product and like the extent to which you see, you know, like Lacazette making the wrong choice, taking the snapshot or, you know, Odegaard not using his right. All the, all the things we brought up because you have these nearly moments 
And I feel like sometimes we overanalyze them because all the good teams that batter teams and push them back wind up having a lot of nearly moments. If they, you know, again, if they converted all of them, it'd be 10 nil every game. And by the way, I'm still waiting on that one. But I mean, do you, do you have a sense of, do you think that the team is pressing a little too much that they know goals are the issue and that maybe there's just that little bit of stress and anxiety in the final moment because they're so focused on that? So I think if you, you, you walk away with certain messages from a game and certain themes. I think the theme I'd walk away from this game was efficiency, really. General attacking efficiency. Mm. There was opportunities to do different things, right? So none of this is bad. This is just, okay, we've had a good win, home win. How can we be better? It's a simple question. If you don't continue to improve, you're going to end up going backwards, right? So... So I look at this game and I look at the midfield balance. And again, Shaka does a roll really well. It's a, an eight-stroke six roll. He rolls around to a double six when we're under pressure. And then he pushes up to be an eight and the left pods, what we've spoken about many times. So we don't stand in shape. We don't stand in four three three. Mm-hmm. So on and off the ball, rolls responsibility. So that could be quite clear. Sometimes we go into a diamond and sometimes we don't. We just have one man up each front. Sometimes when we go to a four five one, we do whatever we need to do for that game state, right? So but if I look at the midfield three on their own, you've got parties now developing into that deep player and does it really, really well. And I, I rewatched the second half earlier, and you can see so many times when he's moving to the man under pressure to create that release, to then keep it in a very unspectacular way. I felt he used to do that role in a spectacular way. We could all see it and go, oh, that's brilliant. But actually, the unspectacular, almost El Nenny style, I'm here for you type release valve play was really important as well. And you have Odegaard, who's more of a playmaker, slightly higher up on the right-hand side, you know, connecting to our superstar, right? So you got that situation developing. And the other person in midfield, if you just look at the interior as a whole, the other person in midfield should be a connector, a connector that connects with different ways. Now, it could be passing and traveling as well, you know, carrying as well as passing the ball and different types of passing. So you tend to have a sitter, a playmaker, and a connector as your midfield three. So Shaka really is a sitter that's trying to play a role as a connector. Yeah. And, and so there's a little bit there's a little bit lack of a balance there, but there's not a problem because he's such a game player that you say, okay, but we, we need you right now because when we when those two play, we don't lose very many games. The control they offer the, the the partnership they offer, while not being a partnership, if that makes sense, they create different partnerships. But when we need them to control the game, they're very close together. They play between each other, and we're up and away. So, Shaka is his role's equally as important as Party, even though Party looks a spectacular one because we overburden him, right? So, so efficiency. Just go back to that. Having a discussion with with Matt on the old Discord, right, and we we're talking about the amount of crosses we put in. Now. We put in 43 crosses in this game. Now, is that efficient for this Arsenal team? Right? So it helped us play in territory. It helped us play where we wanted to play. And you can say, okay, we've won the game. Can we discuss this? You know, do, is this what you want to do? Do we get, do we need to be a bit more penetrative and those crosses be more cutbacks? The crosses are not bad. What should happen, the two things that should happen is where you're crossing from. And have you got the right movement in the box? Are you running into the box? Are you flooding? Are you collapsing? If you look at the second half, Shaka found himself in the box a lot. right? And that's good. I mean, they've seen the fact they're getting chanced across. They're trying to load up. So again, efficiency in the last third. 
can we be more efficient? Can we can we you know look at our players and trust them and, and, and start to move to the box? Start to flood those areas. And I think that's that'll be the coaching message I'd walk away with. Not an issue. We still had all 16 chances in the first half, which are mostly done for I don't know how long. And so it's not an issue here. But if we want to get where we want to get to, I would be working on our efficiency in the last third, decisions, choices, and making sure we, we the best use of our possession for the balance of the players that we currently have in our team. Yeah. That would be my message, mate. And there are different types of crosses too. So like Saka put in a couple in-swinging crosses from the top of the box that I think are great crosses and we want to do those kinds of things i think those are good for the the players inverted crosses. you've got yes, your inverted crosses you've got your outswinger crosses mm-hmm. but mate in the end liverpool put loads of crosses in but look how they sprint into the box they sprint into those back zones they know well, what they're it's doing not like they're getting headers for van dyke either you've got sadio mane no. winning headers you've exactly. got you've got diogo joto winning headers so. it's about your movement and are you there mm. and are you attacking it are you attacking the ball with speed against static defenders who are standing there who can't get a run and jump against you. It's all part of the cohesion and the efficiency I was really trying to get to. I'm not saying crosses are bad. I'm not saying that in in the moment. No, 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 not at all. Well, that's why I'm saying, you know what it is, Clive? I think sometimes with that last ball, there's just a little bit of impatience, you know, a desire to get the cross in when maybe you could have just held it a little longer, waited for something to come open. But also, I still think we can fill the box a little more intelligently. Like there was one moment where... Oh my gosh, Emil Smith-Rowe, I think it's a, a ball over the top, and he takes it down under pressure and sort of body faints like he's going to go to the touchline. And so the defender tries to sort of like jump that angle, and he just takes it right to the byline, right past him. Yeah. And he cuts it back to the penalty spot, and no one's making the run there. Our center forward has gone to the back mm-hmm. stick, and by the way, when we did a Wolves rewatch, Clive and I noticed a time again where a, a run across the box was available, and he... he he really just sort of wanted to pin his defender instead. And Saka can't get there. I don't know if it's Lacazette who should be coming back to that spot or Odegaard who should be making the second man run there. But I think there were a number of times where we just maybe could fill the box a little more uh, intelligently. You know, the spacing in the box to be available for those cutbacks and things can can still be improved upon. Um, you know, maybe some of that too is that the guy on that left pod who's playing the other eight is not naturally inclined to get into the box, right? So maybe maybe it was a run he could have made that he wasn't quite as attuned to. And all of this will develop as we play this style more. But that moment was brilliant. The other one was the one where uh, Ben White hits Saka with the long pass. And he takes it down with his toe. And Paul, before we get on to, to center forward, and, and then I really want to spend some time on Saka and Smith Rowe, obviously, but the, the refereeing thing is interesting. Look, I... I just can't connect with the idea that there's a conspiracy against Arsenal because I can't see why that would be the case, why anyone would care, why anyone would want to. But here's what I do feel. For whatever the reason, it's not that I feel we're being denied stonewall calls every match. It's that none of the 50-50 calls or the 60-40 calls seem to go for us. And so you watch a game like the United-Brighton game where you know they get a man sent off using VAR in a close situation with his covering defender and it's sort of 50-50 and VAR decides to give it to him. And you look at our games and it just never seems to be given. Now, I think the Lacazette penalty one, I have this weird thought on VAR. I think the longer the play develops before VAR looks at it, the less likely it is to give it. I don't know why I think that. That may not be true. But I think there was a long layoff before VAR got to look at the Lacazette one. I think that was a penalty. I definitely think the handball is a penalty. Now, I can see the argument if I was a fan of the other team where I'd talk myself into it not being a penalty. I'll, let's call those 60-40s. 
Paul, it's not that I think the Stonewall calls are going against us. It's just we are not getting the benefit of the close calls. And in a top four race that's this tight, and in a league that's this tough, and in a low-scoring sport, getting a 50-50 here and there that gives you a penalty or gives you a red card to play against 10 men can win you a game that you can't otherwise win yourself. And I'm curious how you view these calls in this game because there were a number of them that I thought we just about deserved it, but we never seem to get the ones we just about deserved. Um, I don't know. You might be asking the wrong man in the wrong mood. Uh, I guess maybe because we won, I never really got exercised about the calls. The one thing I did think about, it was John Moss, wasn't it? Yeah, he's um, terrible. He's terrible, but he didn't really give anybody anything. Now, okay, it was mostly us who you would have given it to because we were on the attacking end. Um I mean, they like, got their goal with VAR, but to be fair, it's an offside VAR call. It's not really a thing that you can... By, yeah. by the way, real quick before we even get started, has, does anyone had a good look at the, the offside Lacazette goal? Lacazette's not offside there. I think it's Shaka, right? Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, and it's a shame. Uh, and, like, we talk about the Chaka role, like, uh, unfortunately, he's offside because it's really nice play all around him. Perfect ball into Laka. It's a perfect Aubameyang kind of opportunity and finish but with lack of getting to the six yard box it's like everything we kind of think those guys don't do and they did it it would have been a really nice goal would have been good for narrative too (laughs) yeah yeah but uh he was offside um look there there clearly isn't a conspiracy against our uh, arsenal that makes no sense just makes no sense there could be things about the way arsenal is perceived generally there could be things about the way we play, though, like we've had different managers who p- play different ways and it still seemed like <laughs> we never came out uh, level with stuff. Um, it could be a perception about Arsenal, but we're not the only club on the planet who would be perceived that way. Um, I think we've just gone through a sticky patch. And like you can find seasons where we're not not the ones who got all the red cards. We got lots of penalties. We didn't get that many penalties against us. There is a degree of randomness, a degree of how it feels when you're the supporter of a club. Um, the calls that are like the calls that uh, don't punish us. We kind of, we either don't see, or we kind of think we, we were due that and we dismiss them quickly. Um, I think, because this game well went well for me, I'm not as hurt and bruised by our recent, the injustices of the recent decisions against us. And so I've kind of, I've calmed down on that stuff. And definitely, like, we have not been getting the rub of the green and there have been ridiculous calls against us. But as long as John Moss and the referees were, were consistent about how they refereed this game and our calls and the Lacazette decision and the the uh, the handball off their defender, um, if if they did that consistently with other teams, I wouldn't have an issue with it. The problem is you go and watch another game, and but it's it's a slightly different situation, a different referee, a different energy, uh, and a different result. And I just think that's the na- like. <sighs> What can you do? You you have to uh, control what you can control, which that is... That I agree with. I get frustrated lots of attacking football. Yeah. yeah, lots yeah. of attacking football. If we play in their box a hell of a lot more, as we're starting to do, 
than they play in our box, <clears throat> we're going to get a lot more decisions. It's just, yeah. That's just how it is. I have to and, admit, like, one of my theories that, that has kind of been blown up a little is earlier in the season I said, look, you know, we can complain about not getting the calls, but when you only take six shots and you're only in the box four times, you have four touches in the box in a game, like – the one big call that comes your way you may not get, but if you have more touches in the box and more dominance and more shots, you put more pressure on the opposition and you get more handballs and niggly fouls in the box and things like that. And like, this was exactly the game for that. And we did get exactly those things and we didn't get the calls. So it, it does feel like we can't, we can't win either way. I mean, now we're pushing teams back. We're creating pressure We're we're creating more of these nearly incidents and still not getting the calls, Clive. Yeah, I think I, I think we have to sometimes take get our heads up and just realise that we're not the only team that complains about referees. And I read the other week in the Athletic, surely you can't be serious. <laughs> I read in the Athletic, I read in the Athletic the other week they're looking to bring in a new elite referee performance or development plan or something like that, and it's based around the Triple P, which is the elite player performance plan which they brought in sort of just after 2010, 11, 12, not sure which year, but I know my son was in it. So, And that's really has transformed our academies across the country, and that's really boosted England teams, etc. And we're getting a much higher quality of, of homegrown player into our into our leagues now. And they need to do something about refereeing standards, and, and they are starting to think about that, and not before time, not just the standards, but the diversity of those referees. If you get the same thoughts, type of guys making the same type of decisions from the same backgrounds in the same way with the same amount of football experience zero most of them playing wise etc you're going to get the same things and all this change the light around the referee decision has got really really bright and far rather than be something that can help them has actually put them under even more focus every single league game now is a is a world event and these guys are running around in the middle not enough of them doing too many games too many times fourth officials don't get any chance to get a rest. We're not fourth officials in the VAR van. Something needs to change because it's too much on it now to have these guys waddling around the middle. It's just too much. And um, I, I actually feel sorry for them. I generally do. I feel sorry for them. They are, they're a victim of the explosion of the game. They're, they're so, they can't help but take shortcuts. They can't help but referee on reputation. And we're suffering because of that. Mm. We, are, we are profiled a certain way. Arsenal Football Club, whether you like it or not, we are, historically. We are profiled as a, a quite an undisciplined club uh, on the pitch, where I think it's totally unfair. And these metrics start to come out now regarding fouls versus cards. And like anything in this modern game, inflation will flow, and they'll change their opinions again. And I think Paul makes a good point. When we start getting really, really good and start running into opposition boxes, we're going to get more of these decisions. I find it really frustrating how games get distorted. You know my view with red cards. That's a game thing to fix. You know, there are things we can do around time, etc. That's a game thing. That's a rule thing to fix, and we need to do that. But these referees, I'm glad they're doing something at Premier League because everything else is fantastic up to a point has improved. But the refereeing, in my opinion, has stayed the same. And that means in in retrospect it's gone backwards. So that's not that's no longer yeah. good enough for me. No longer good enough. Yeah, it the standard of refereeing not being great is probably why we see bad decisions more than any conspiracy. I mean, look, if you think there's a conspiracy against Arsenal, I, I can't talk you out of it because frankly, like we do just get officiated in a very bizarre way, as far as I'm concerned. And I can't put my finger on why. What's hard 
I don't watch enough of other teams consistently enough and care about them enough to really connect with whether they have the same sense of injustice. I imagine they probably do. But this is just a reflection of a lower level of refereeing standards in general. I mean, I, you know, watching the Euros and the standard of refereeing in that tournament, for example, and the Champions League, it's very different. Um, it th- This game did produce a, a, a sort of hilarious moment for me, and I don't know if anyone else connected with this. There was a period where John Moss was disciplining uh, Gabriel, and he had a long, long conversation with him. And Gabriel's nodding and facial expressions. I'm thinking, he doesn't understand a word you're saying, surely. Like, <laughs> there's no possibility he knows what you're saying. And it's just, I, I, it did make me wonder, like, when these referees pull aside non-English speaking players and have a long word with them, like, what is that conversation like? It just, surely he must be aware that the player has no idea what he's telling him. But I, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Gabriel's understanding English, but not speaking it very well. So I could be wrong there, but it did, it did give me a laugh in the moment. And so, yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe these things even out that, you know, there's that expression, these things even out, in my experience, they don't. But like, if they do, the next few games would be a very handy time for that to happen. Um, I think there's a lot here. I, I think there is a discussion about the striker to be had, as, and I know that's redundant and, and boring, so we won't focus on that. I want to really focus on Smith Rowe and Saka and the goals, and maybe the future for Smith Rowe, um, as well as you know maybe what the Spurs result does for my very popular theory that top four is a lock for us, which I've been banging on about recently. Um, but I, I would be remiss if I did not say that as someone who has recently been thinking about like making some life changes, and obviously if you've listened, you know, I've gone through a bit of a hard time professionally and, and I am thinking of making life changes. And as a result, you know, you look around on the job market and you realize that like most of job hunting on the web is just an absolute stinking morass of, of misery and um, worthlessness. But, but I have to admit there's one that rises above, and especially if you are hiring. I mean, if you are looking for talent, if you are looking to hire, you need Indeed. I mean, it's that simple. Like, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe I should use this product that I talk about. So I went on there, and it, it is a totally different experience. Um, and it just avoids needing to go to 32 different sites, and it, it's so great. So a couple of things to know about Indeed. If you're, uh, It's a hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place, he says. Uh, getting composed. Uh, Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. I think that's really important because online, especially like there's a lot of leakage when it comes to value. Leakage is a word you don't usually like to hear, but that's okay. At least it's not the Manscaped ad. Um, and, and, you know, if you're not paying unless they meet your requirements, then you're not going to have that. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you every step of the way. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, this is a good one. As soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit. Upgrade your post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 job credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. And there's one other thing you need, Indeed, and that is to shave your privates. Look, it's this simple. Shave your privates. Shave your privates. I implore you. Shit. What? Stop what you're doing. Stop. Don't stop listening to the podcast, obviously. Don't bring the podcast in the shower unless you have a, a waterproof speaker. Go into the shower right now with your waterproof speaker, continue to listen to the podcast, and shave your privates. And here's the thing. If you don't have the Lawnmower 4.0, shave your privates with whatever razor is in there and tell me how it goes. Email me. Tell me how it went. Probably didn't go great. This is the point. Every single person I know 
grooms their privates. You know how I know it's the first thing I ask them when I meet them? Hi, I'm Elliot. Do you shave your privates? And they're like, you know what? I do. So use the tool that's purpose-built to do it. With ceramic blades and skin-safe technology, you don't get nicks. You don't get scratches. You present yourself. You know, like if you're going to a job interview, you want to present yourself nicely. If you're going into a, a personal um, romantic endeavor, you want to present yourself nicely there too. So no nicks and scratches and cuts. It's wet, dry, long battery life. You can just sit it in the charger and it charges itself beautifully. All the different sizing guards. So you can do all the different parts of your body. Plus, they've got lotions and tonics and they've got the deodorant and the toner and the cologne and the shed bag to put it all in. They've got great nail clippers. They've got it all. What are you doing? Nose hair trimmer? You got it. Go to manscaped.com. Use promo code Arsenal Vision. Save 20% off and get free shipping. Manscaped.com. Promo code Arsenal Vision. Save 20% and free shipping. By now, you know you need to do it. Manscaped.com. Promo code Arsenal Vision. Save 20% and free shipping worldwide. Clive, is that enough of that? It certainly is. It is. You know, I am passionate about the companies we work with, and I, I have to admit, I think they're good companies. And it also makes me proud that they want to work with us. That means a lot to me, and it means a lot to me because the community has grown us to this point where companies might actually want to sponsor this podcast. So it's all a beautiful thing, and we owe it to everybody listening. So thank you for that. Um, okay, uh, I guess, Paul, like, there, there is this discussion that we have, and Clive has said it, and I've said it, and I, I think he probably said it too. We're putting too much pressure on these young players. But I thought about it, right? Like, no one ever says PSG is putting too much pressure on Mbappe, or Dortmund is putting too much pressure on Holland, or Barcelona is putting too much pressure on Pedri. Maybe they say that. I don't know. Um, and the less said about Barcelona, the better. Uh, but, like, it's occurring to me that actually, if you have really, really excellent players and the excellent players become the most important players in your team, that, that that's actually very natural and normal, regardless of their age. So while we are putting a lot of pressure on the likes of Martinelli, Saka, Smith-Rowe, Odegaard, they are our best players. And so I'm starting to lean more towards like, why can't we be top four? Why can't we compete for a league? Why can't we compete for Champions Leagues <laughs> with players that are... 21, 22, 23, if they really are just some of the best. And I look around the league, I watch a lot of it. I don't see a lot of players I regard as better than these. So can you maybe come around to the idea that like, hey, you know what? Overburdening Saka is actually normal because he is a sensational player in the same way that, and again, I'm not trying to put them in the Mbappe and Holland class. I'm not, I'm not crazy yet, but like no one complains about overburdening young players when they're great. And maybe we just need to stop worrying and realize these young players are just great. Well, I think there's two things going on there. There's there's putting too much pressure on them and the question of whether we're overburdening them. Those like one's psychological mm, and fair. one's mm-hmm. one's kind of physical uh the grind of it. Like these guys are fucking loving it. They want more, not less, right? Look at the way they celebrate there. I mean, they're having the time of their life, you know. <laughs> Who wouldn't? It like if you're playing for Arsenal and you're playing good football, and uh, you're doing most of the attacking and we're creating. Like, it's not like the worst Unai Emery days or the early days with Arteta when we were trying to work out how to get up. You, you know, it's not, It. this is all, this is what you live for. This is what you dream it would be like if you were a professional football uh, uh, footballer. This is what Josh De Silva, uh, who played for Brentford, but came through our our academy, dreamt his future would be like, but it wasn't. I mean, it's still a pretty good future for him. But like Smith Rowe and Saka and Odegaard, like this is what o- maybe Odegaard dreamed it would be at Real Madrid, but this is basically what he dreamed football would feel like for him. 
they want more, not less. But I, I think you also raised the interesting point that I don't think we should talk up top four too much as like nobody's going to listen to you and me anyway, so it doesn't really <laughs> matter. But no, we shouldn't. We should be careful with that side of the pressure. The assumptive expecting things of players who had like just it's going good. Let them do it. Um, like they're very positive. Smith Rowe's comments it, talked very positively about our chances for top four. You know, Arteta's quite. He doesn't uh, play it down. That you know, he doesn't do the old. Oh, we're we're not the favorite for this. Oh, we're you know. He talks it up. He talks it up in the sense of we're well in the mix. We're in. You know, we're doing the right things. We're moving forward. We take it game by game. So those are two different things. Um. Like, I'll leave it to the physios and the medical team to work out whether these guys are getting physically fried. But the other thing that's going to help them a lot is the competition, right? If you are the guys who know you're going to start every week, that starts putting some pressure on you. Except when you know when your mindset is different. Like, if you take Smithrow and Martinelli, it's almost a freedom from the pressure of having to perform. The fact that, actually, you have to compete. It's competition and cooperation between our players. The fact that we have maybe five guys for three or four spots in the, you know, six, throw in Pepe, um, and hopefully he, he's, he's back in the mix now and hopefully stays in that mix, that keeps everybody fresh. It keeps them from focusing too much on where we are in the top four race and what your last performance was for the team letting down the team or can you get keep getting goals to... I need to kind of push it on another level if I'm going to keep Martinelli out on Thursday. Like Smithrow has to start, as far as I'm concerned. Well, we're going to come on to that. I want to have a discussion about that. Yeah, Yeah, we'll have a. But like in principle, Smithrow should start in the next game. Now maybe he won't. Maybe it should be Martinelli. Whatever. But that's brilliant for Smithrow and Martinelli because neither of them then sits back and says, oh, I've got the burden of carrying Arsenal and getting a goal in the next game. They're like, i I got to keep that fucker out of my place. And <laughs> it's a different Hopefully energy. they don't of- refer to each other that way, though. <laughs> <laughs> all right, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I wouldn't worry about this at all. We have really exciting, talented young players who need to push each other. And that's where the pressure should come from. And our football is positive. It's not like playing for Burnley and slogging away and always been under pressure. We mm-hmm. we are the ones who knock. <laughs> well, yeah, touche. Uh, Clive, I think one of the issues, too, is our understanding of who Smith Rowe is as a player. And this is something that I think is still evolving for a lot of us because – he came into the team sort of as a 10 last season, right? Under emergency circumstances, filled in at the, you know, as the one at, at the in the 4231 as the one between the the lines. And he he did a really nice job adding something we missed. But as we've gotten to know this player more, there are layers to this onion, there are aspects to his game. And I actually think now he's better as a carrier, as a dribbler, as a shooter, as a scorer in the box than he is as a passer. If anything, I think his passing is the part of the game that can that can develop, that that has room to grow. And understanding who this player is is really interesting. You know, is he a left eight? Well, actually, maybe he's a false nine. You know, maybe he's a secondary striker, a, a Griezmann-type player. I, I mean, it it is interesting because with young players, what they look like when you first see them and who they become can be very different things. And so we're starting to learn who we can become. And I'm curious, 
how your opinion of Smith Rowe is evolving. I mean, the, the goal he scores is a forwards goal. You know, he takes it on a run, cuts inside, you know, off gets his defender off balance and passes into the far post. I mean, maybe it's a little soft. Maybe the keeper can do better, but he's rewarded for his endeavor. And I think it's, you know, it's not little tight space linking stuff. It's not little, you know, flighty number 10 Odegaard stuff. This is big space, wide forward kind of play. So are you adjusting your or updating your priors on, on Smith Rowe and what his, what his future no. might be? Well, I'm not a fan of number 10s, really. Um, I well, think, there are very few of them left, to be fair. Well, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of them. I think they become – they're almost like the, – the concept is like a luxury. I, I think he's um, he's an attacking mid for me that can play on the outside or, or on the inside. That That's it. And he, he moves around a bit. And so what I tend to do when I'm not sure about a player, I tend to look at what he does really well and – and he just receives the ball very nicely. I think sometimes he's conservative. He sets the ball when he could turn around. But then he does turn around. We all think he just rolls around the corner. He's like he's running downhill. And he just gaps people, makes good decisions at pace, seems to have his head up, have real good clarity as he's moving at his most intense. He seems to have real clarity at that point. And that's when most people lose their thought process, when they're at their physical limit. He seems comfortable to do the right decision at its physical limit, as does Saka, by the way. So I just look at him and think, okay, what do you do well? And I, I just, I, I think he's got a fantastic first touch. You know, sometimes when you go to a game, a player leaves an impression on you. And I just remember one game I went to, it might have been um, Aston Villa, I think. Someone just fired the ball into him and he, and he just killed it. And when he killed it, I, I could literally hear how hard the ball was kicked at him. And he just killed it, brought it in, protected it. And I thought to myself, you know what, that false line thing isn't dead. You know, and it isn't dead. And I never felt against Villarreal him playing false line was the issue. It was other issues on the pitch that made that stand out. Everyone said, well, we shouldn't have played in false nine. Actually, it was the things we did behind him that were wrong. And we never got a chance to see it again. And I just think the way the football is now, it's an interior-exterior game. And he can play in the interior or the exterior. He can play deep. He can play high. That, to me, isn't a problem for the fans for us to work out. That's a problem for the coach to deploy him properly because that's a good problem to have. Someone can do all those things. Mate, this is going to be fun. All he's got to do is get in the gym and make sure he can last the full 90 minutes and doesn't break down. That's literally all he's got to do. His body's changing. You can see it's becoming far more defined in his, in his lower body. And there's more to come. There is more to come. I think he's a late physical developer, and there's just more to come from him. I, I don't see a problem here, Elliot. I really don't. And I and I don't mind where it ends up. I don't mind where it ends up. When I look at some of... I know you might get onto Lacazette. I'm just going to touch it a little bit. When I look Please at what, what, well, what Lacazette's doing, he does a lot of uh, intangible, dirty, ugly, unseen stuff. But let's not pretend it's, it's prime DDA Drogba. Do you know what I mean? Because no. it just isn't. Yeah, I'm going to make a comment about that too when you're done. Yeah. It, it just isn't. There's some simple passes that were missed, chances that were missed to play, simple passes, mm-hmm. wrong decisions. However, I will hold my thoughts there because when we have really hard games, you need you need your men and we'll need Lacazette. You know, we might need them against Spurs. He always does well then. So it's a time for all of them. We've reduced this squad and... One of the reasons why we reduced it was to create some unity and all of these players, including Pepe, Lacazette, they'll all have their moment, right? They'll all have their moment. Smith Rowe, I'm so interested to see what he could be, 
without really knowing or caring, as long as he is a significant contributor to where we're going. And if he keeps doing what we're doing, I, I have this feeling every time he plays well, we play well. Mm. And that influence <clears throat> at his age is, uh, is uh, you know, I just... I just applaud him, really, for what he's doing for our football club since yeah. he's come in. Absolutely fantastic. It, it, it's big boy football time now, too, because like I am admittedly an absolute nightmare when it comes to worrying that a player I like won't get to start every game. But like at the big clubs who compete for big things, there's usually a guy on the bench that some section of the fan base wishes was starting instead. And do I think, Paul, that... Gabriel Martinelli should start for Arsenal. I do. I think he's one of our most important players. Do I think that Emil Smith-Rowe deserves to keep the shirt against Wolves on Thursday? I also do. And that's the challenge. Should I be mad if he keeps it and Martinelli doesn't start? Of course not. So then you're going to start to get a little FIFA, get a little fantasy football and start thinking, well, we could just drop Lacazette and play Martinelli, Saka, and Smith-Rowe. And like, that time is coming. In my mind, the time is coming where that is going to be the front three at Arsenal. And maybe it'll be Smith-Rowe in the center, Martinelli out wide, or, or maybe vice versa. There'll be more fluidity. And it'll be Odegaard and a new number eight behind them, and it'll be party at the base and eventually a new, a new guy there. And that's the evolution, in my view. But whether we should do that now is difficult. And I, I agree with Clive in this sense. The extent to which we praise Lacazette for fundamentally, for being a fundamental part to why we're having more dominance and how we build play is difficult for me. On the one hand, I absolutely believe he deserves credit for it, that the things we do that work, work in part because of him. I also think we maybe give him a bit too much credit to, to Clive's point about, you know, peak Drogba or whatever, peak Firmino. Like, there are simple passes being missed. He does look absolutely gassed after 55 minutes, and in this game, maybe after 35 minutes. But like, so I, I, I don't, you know, the idea that you just drop Lacazette and then go to a center forward who has never really played center forward for us, either in Smith Rowe or, or Martinelli, is a big risk to take with a, with a team that by and large in the league has been playing great for a while now. So I understand the conundrum that the coach faces, but let's face it, someone's going to be unhappy because my guess is either Smith Rowe or Martinelli will start against Wolves. It'll be one or the other, and Lacazette will keep his place. And some sub subset of fans will be upset that the other guy didn't start. But this is kind of how it works. So how do you see the immediate future, like literally Thursday, and the long-term future, do you agree that we will eventually, most likely, be looking at a Martinelli, Smith-Rowe, and Saka front three, but we're probably not going to be seeing it yet? Um, where, where will I begin with that? So, well, what about what about the, the short term? Like the, the fact term. that it's probably one of these guys, not both of these guys. Yeah. Why do we keep trying to fix a problem we don't have? Like, why... Uh, I understand... Lacazette is not the ideal false nine or nine for a a top level team, but it's working. Um, and while I think, while we you said maybe we give him too much credit, we all know what he does for us. I still think mm. we don't give him enough credit for what it is he does. Um, That's fair. He's he's essential to how we play at the moment. Now, there are better players out there and we'll upgrade in the summer, I hope. I don't necessarily think that the future is Martinelli, Smith-Rowe and Saka um, because Martinelli might just be best 
as that wide forward in the Obama Yang role that didn't quite work for Obama Yang, at mm. least for a year or two, right? Mm. Maybe he'll be an out, but he likes space to run into. And you don't get a lot of space in the Premier League as a striker. Um, like the goals come from wide. We keep doing this. We keep saying, oh, well, we keep thinking the goals come from the center forward. I mean, how's that working out for Lukaku and Chelsea? Seven, seven touches for Lukaku, and two of them, I think, were from kickoffs. Yeah. Why <laughs> would you not, do that to Martinelli? <laughs> he loves running at a defender. He loves being able to drop in. He loves being able to run behind. Like the the wide forward on the left, sw- doing the classic Henri Aubameyang curler into the ne- into the far netting. I mean, why do we keep changing problems we don't have? All that worry, especially in January over Lacazette, because we weren't scoring goals, blah, blah, blah. It had nothing to do with Lacazette. I mean, it would have been great if he'd popped in a couple. would have been very nice. And he had a couple of chances he didn't take. But that wasn't why we were scoring. weren't scoring. It was because we had no midfield. It was because we weren't creating, because we weren't in the right spots. Goals come from the wide forwards these days, at least as much as the center forward. Saka scoring, Smith Rowe scoring. Like when we have the rest of the place in uh, the team in place, when we have Tommy Yasu there, okay, we've got Cedric and he's playing well at the moment. That's apparently good enough. Like we just need Party, Chaka, uh, uh, Tommy Yasu or Cedric at the moment, mm-hmm. and Tierney in position and. Any collection of the attacking forwards plus Lacazette, and it basically works against everybody but the top three clubs. What and that's the, enough, by the way, for now. Yeah. <laughs> what are we trying to fix? Like, there was a poll on Twitter yesterday after this game. or Yeah, it was yesterday. And uh, they gave kind of four reasonable options of the four players we're talking about. Saka, Smith-Rowe, Lacazette, Martinelli. And like... 70% of people voted for uh, the three kids dropping Lacazette. And I'm like, what you say you want and what you do if you were the actual manager of an actual team in the run-in f- for the top four, you wouldn't remotely uh, play those three in the next game if you needed to beat Wolves. You just wouldn't do it. I mean, it's a lovely idea. It's, it's like very FIFA football. Hey, can I ask you a question then? Yeah. What about the idea that maybe just like, on 55 minutes, you just respect the fact that Lacazette's maybe run his race and can't do some of the things that we want him to do, and then you you change it up so that you you aren't you aren't watching those diminishing returns for 20 minutes. You know, I, I, like Lacazette's playing whole games, and and I yeah. I don't know right now that that's working exactly. Okay, <laughs> so I could be wrong on this, but I think he's actually playing the best part in 90 minutes now. I think he's pretty solid. His fitness levels, like, and I fully accept that I haven't, like, dug into it fully, but, like, I think he looks like he's doing his thing for the best part in 90 minutes. I think he's okay. I think I think we're living in the past now. Could be, Like I say, I could be very wrong on this, but I think we're living in the past on who Lacazette is. I don't think he's blowing after 30 minutes. I think he's absolutely quite fine. And uh, he, he kind of, he, he's that emotional stability. He's the captain. There's the leadership. I mean, I, I think they're managing him because they need him for 16 games. I don't think they took him off because he couldn't play 90 uh, minutes in this particular game. And I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, Clive, I don't, I feel like what we're going to not do, hopefully, 
is discuss Alexander Lockstead after every game because I we are in that sort of liminal space where like everything we do looks pretty good and he's playing and he's playing in a pretty important position so he must be doing okay and yet we know that it's an area upgrade fine I'm more curious about what you think we're going to do against Wolves in terms of Smith Rowe and Martinelli like my my guess is Martinelli will just start on the bench and some people will be absolutely furious about that because again to my point everybody's got that player they think needs to start but the idea that we should take this team that's playing well, pull out our only established striker who, whatever his limitations, is a part of what we're doing well, and go with something we pretty much never really try to rely on. I mean, could it work? It could work and it could turn us into, it could take us up to the next level of what we're capable of. But it's a huge roll of the dice at a time when there's no margin for error. So how, how do you see that that balance of of what we should do with the front line? I'm generally not sure. I'm not worried, to be honest. I, I think um, as long as we, you know, I'm never a big believer. You know, first 11s, it's, it's, it's how you end the game as well and how you want mm-hmm. to play. It's, it's what your game model is. Do you want to start fast, establish yourself, pin them back? If you want to do that, you might want to start with Martelli, right? So on the left, you know, I felt in the first half in this game, despite the fact we created a million chances, I was thinking to myself at nil-nil, We've taken out somebody who's a forward and replaced him with a midfielder. We have a set of forward that doesn't really see himself as a, uh, somebody with the goal responsibility. He's more of a connector, intangible forward. And then you have a, a wing forward in Saka that some people think can't finish. Right, So at nil-nil, a little bit wide for about five minutes or so. Half-time, second half, Smith Rowe started playing like a forward. He started running. He started going off. He's spinning off the shoulder on clearances from Ramsdale. He started running deep, spinning in, chasing long balls and attacking the spaces and pushing them back. And he played like a forward, not a midfielder setting and connecting. And we looked far more dangerous for it. Now you can say to Smithrow, play like you did in the second half, mate. You start the week against Wolves. And, and I get the balance that I would like to see. Forwards on the outside are connecting all actions set forward in the middle. Right, that's the sort of balance I would like to see. And sometimes the styles that we have in our heads dictate how we view performance. You know, something I didn't think about this weekend. I have a certain style issues at fullback, shall we say, that I like to see on the right back. Tommy actually fits that style. Maybe Cedric doesn't fit that style. Doesn't mean that he's a bad player. But before, you know, I may not see his performances clearly because I want something else stability-wise. On this day, it didn't matter what we had at right back because it, we were better than them, right? But on another day, we need something else. I think that's what you're saying, Elliot. It's not on this day. It's not an issue with Lacazette. But on another day, we're going to need something else, something better. Maybe that can come from Lacazette. Maybe it comes from somebody else. And I think there's no shame in feeling like this. Um, there's no shame in always looking at a football team, the team that you love, even though you win, and saying, oh, I wonder if we tweak that, how we would look. Now, most of us haven't got to pick a team every single weekend. You know, and I help pick a team every weekend. Trust me, I don't get it right all the time. And and so we can do this and have some fun with it. And if we're not slagging the other player. Do you see what I mean? And, going in, and the environment's correct for those players to grow. I'll always look at a team and look at ways to make it better in my own mind, always, and then analyze it and see how we can improve it, see how roles are evolving, see how patterns are evolving. And if we can't do that, mate, there's, there's no fun, is there? <laughs> to, me, that, to me, that is the fun, right? Or, uh, as long as you stay on side of people and try to analyze it fairly and squarely, which I, which I try to do. So that's yeah. why I'm really... Look, I, I think 
the good news is that the football we are playing now is is really the the right way to play against three quarters of the league. And like, I have been critical of Mikel Arteta at many times throughout his time at Arsenal. There have been questions raised about man management and the ways handled some of those situations. Let's set that aside for a minute. The principal issue I have is that I didn't see football that could be a consistent points accumulator because of where we played on the pitch, the paucity of chances, the lack of dominance. I felt it was it was not you know plus EV as they would say that it, that it relied too much on nicking it and and variance was going to cost you. And I look at the way we're playing now and the way we've been playing for a couple of months in the league, and I see football that is a repeatable way to accumulate points. A lot of shots, a lot of territory, a lot of dominance. We need to get better at the final ball. We will. We have young players developing to that extent. And I love the way it's unlocking our most talented players to do the things they're good at. Who are the players dominating games for Arsenal now? Odegaard, Saka, Smithrow, Martinelli. You wouldn't want it any other way. Who's the midfielder being given? Yeah, mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, I thought you'd finished there. Sorry, mate. Never. <laughs> I, I just wanted to have a little bit on this about what you, that you couldn't see the football. And, and I've been on those podcasts with you <laughs> when you were struggling <laughs> to see these things. We were discussing it. But, you know, I had a certain level of confidence. And, and do you remember when Arteta, when we were drinks break, drinks break Arsenal? Remember that, that mm-hmm. period? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were, I thought his ability to see the game and fix the game and put a solution out there immediately was stunning, even to the point where other coaches were talking about it. From that moment on, I was convinced we would get somewhere to a, to a better place. And the only thing that was stopping it was the, was the players that we had to choose from. Mm-hmm. They've cleared out the players we had to choose from. Even in this game, only four players started this game versus the first game of the season. This team has evolved. The player quality has gone up. The coach could always see for me, I think reducing the squad has reduced some of his selection issues, shall we say. I think he's got some of that wrong. Easy to say in hindsight. I've never picked a bad team. Do you know what I mean? And so, me neither. And, and I think... I think if you look at those fundamental things, can he see the game? Can he feel the game? I always was convinced he could. Now the players are coming, we can start to see him more clearly. And that's what's changing. The fact that we like these players, we feel a connection to them. Now we have a club with a common goal that's linked top to bottom. And it's really interesting. Yeah, and you know, the funny thing is, look, there's always been structure and positional discipline and coherence to the football we played under him. Like under Emery at some of its lowest points, I felt that the the game was just a mess. You'd, there'd be nine guys, you know, on the left half space or left wing and one switch and we'd be beaten. Like you haven't had those issues with Arteta. I think what's changed for me is maybe there was a complaint that he was too structured. You know, the players, everything was too mechanical. But now that he's delivering the team into the final third, the final third is where you can have a little fun and improvise a bit, and there can be a little more jazz. And we're seeing that because, you know, look at the joy that, that Odegaard's playing with. The structure has now delivered us into that part of the pitch, and now the players get to do, you know, the flare bits, the part that make them special. I, I am enjoying it. And so, I, you know, I, th- I think that, that that is a really nice development, and, and it, it gives me a lot more confidence for what we're trying to do going forward, both on the pitch and uh, in terms of, Time-wise, you know, like longitudinally. But, Paul, the the thing with Saka is, you know, I, I think Saka was always such a clean, clever player. But now 
he's taken on a role where like there's something different about him this season. Maybe the summer really did it for him, feeling like he belongs. He is not shy to take a shot, not shy to be the one who has to make the last contribution, put in the cross, beat a man. He's nearly impossible to live with on the ball, isolated. Even two-on-one, he beats guys routinely. But, you know, you see the trust that Arteta has in him when he decides to take Smith-Rowe off and bring on Pepe and just move Saka left. Oh, I can just put you wherever I want to put you because you're going to thrive there. And sure enough, he does, and he scores the goal. And it's brilliantly struck. I think it just reflects, you know, to our point about are you putting too much pressure on the young players? I mean, Arteta feels like he can just put Saka anywhere and he knows he'll respond and can play him for 90 minutes and he can play him left or right. And nine times out of 10, he's getting that that man of the match level or thereabouts caliber performance from him. And he did it again this game. Yeah, I think when you're as talented as he is, this doesn't feel like pressure. You just want more of it. You want more of the ball. You want more of the challenges. He's so good. He's so clean. It doesn't matter if you put two or three players on him, he'll still make a good decision. <clears throat> so from a manager's standpoint, like I, when I think of England, um, <clears throat> and I don't do that often, I don't lie back and think when of you England. you lie on your back and think of England? <laughs> yeah, but when I do, like if you're uh, uh, Southgate, right, I think he's going to lean into Saka more and more. When you consider the talents he has with Mount and Foden, um, like Foden's brilliant, but I could see Southgate. I could see me as England manager putting first player on the uh, on the pitch. Okay, you, you're going to play your Harry Kane's or whatever. Sadly, but, yes. But beyond that, first player on the pitch, Saka. Why? Because he's always going to deliver. He's always going to make a good decision. He, uh, you can feed him the ball, <clears throat> and you never regret it. Right? He, he's he's not going to drop you in it. Uh, he's smart, he's stable, he's he's clever on the options. Like, he could well end up being the England captain in a few years, and it'll be him diving all over the pitch and getting referees' calls because he's the bloody England captain. Um, that would be lovely. It would be lovely. <laughs> I mean, not uh, the diving all over the pitch thing, but the getting the calls thing would be fun. Yeah, unfortunately, it could take a while for Harry Kane to die off is the only problem within the England team. But that's about the, like... He probably needs a year or two before he's established himself. But he's going to have that presence in the game, I think, generally. That we've got that side worked out. And he's going to pull two, three players, two and a half players in his direction every time he gets the ball, which means the switch to the other side, the overload for whoever's over that side. Um, and then the relationships and understanding. And him and Smith-Rowe and Odegaard are going to have a glorious future together and Martinelli on the other side and for me Smith Rowe is particularly interesting because like I mentioned the Diogo Jota thing and I wonder how Jota was doing at his age now that doesn't mean anything but he probably wasn't banging them in and having the impact that Smith Rowe is and you look at the flexibility of that player and Asaka as well could play anywhere across the front four pretty much but that's two players who can play pretty much anywhere. And Smith Rowe may be the one who's kind of a bit more of the the jota for our team over the next year or two, filling in those slots. Do we need a guy as a kind of a a, a, a ten, a, a second ten, or an attacking eight? Or like I agree with Clive, Smith Rowe adjusted to playing basically like Martinelli 
in this game, scored scored the goal you would have wanted from Martinelli in a very Martinelli way. Yeah, it's like right. he can kind of do most of everything. And he's not ready yet to do what Lacazette does in the box, throwing himself around, flopping around, getting the odd penalty, getting free kicks, being a nuisance. Um, he hasn't quite got that bulk there yet and, and, and that know-how in the centre of the park. But I do actually think his tendency to lay off the ball quick, like one of the things with Saka, Saka loves the ball and he'll, he'll, he'll take multiple touches and he'll tease and he'll pull players towards him. Smith throws almost the opposite. It's like you pass on the ball, he'll give it back to you straight away or he'll flick it. He's always already looked where he's laying it off and he'll do it first touch and he'll embarrass the guy who's marking him and he'll run through and onto the, onto the ball like, like a, a Ramsey will. And those are two very interesting and different ways of, of playing and relationships with the ball. Um, and like, like Saka's just, he does it all. He's great. Yeah. And the quality of his delivery. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He's sensational. I mean, I think what you have in Saka uh, in, in the, the trust that he has in the coach and the, the skill that he has on the ball is like, Martinelli and, and Smith are very direct players and very direct players can help you pick open a, a defense and create options for the players who are more creative and the players who are who deliver the ball. But Sack is a player who can just sort of do it all on his own, create something that wasn't there and and pull a defense out of position in a way that I think we sort of anticipated Pepe doing and Pepe just has not been as effective doing. And Clive, I think... I was actually really happy to see Pepe come on. I thought he had a good cameo. He could have had a tap-in goal if um, if Odegaard had you know, slid the ball across with his right instead of tamely shooting with his left, which was sort of a disappointing moment. Um, and he could have had a penalty, although I'm, I'm not sure it was. I, I have to admit I didn't look at it too closely because I didn't care at that point. I do think that Pepe is one of those players that I still sort of feel in the back of my mind if we're going to get where we want to go this season, we still need him. We might need, you know, two goals and an assist from him down the stretch somewhere. And I'm glad he's back in the reckoning. And Arteta talked him up before the game. He brought him on. And I thought I thought he played pretty well. Are you happy to see him sort of reintegrated? And do you think that, that we might just need him a bit before this is all said and done? Uh, very much so. And um, we're going to need them all. We, we, even my mate Eddie, we're going to need him too, right? So um, I think if you look at the difference between Saka and, and Pepe, I, I don't think this is hard to fix, if I'm honest with you. If what Saka does very cleverly is, is he gets into his moves quickly. So the ball comes and he's into it straight away. Bang, I'm off, I'm off. Is there a connection? No, I've got to take somebody on. Okay, I take two on. But it all happens quickly. I felt sometimes what Pepe does is that he's a bit like a, a matador. He he gets it and he stops it. He says, okay, what are you going to do? You're going to dive in? Okay, you dive in, I'll nick it past you. All the time he's having his matador moments, people are running around him and he's not seeing them. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they're running past him. I thought in this game, if you watch his if you watch his performance, he got rid of the ball quicker and he connected better. He had, he had took less touches and less time and then went for secondary movement. And that's how we play. Right. So and, and Odegaard needs that in particular, right? He absolutely. that's what Sakan has has done so well with him. Yeah. He knew, and that's how we play. And so he got he got into the groove of how we play rather than play how he wants to play. Right at the cost of everybody else. Nobody else stands there and watches him do 15 step overs. That's not going to work. He can work around the box, inside the box. 
You can do what you like there. If you can get half a yard and get the ball in, mate, f- feel free because we're already here in position waiting for you. But in that sort of just outside the box in the half space or, on the, or in lane five, you've got to get into your move quicker. Got to get into your dance move quick. Get into it quick. Get it moving so we can we can trust you and we can, we can make our movements knowing we're going to get it and we can rat attack back to you and off we go. That's what Saka does so smartly. He he reads other people around him. They're talent, you know. They're both super talented footballers, but one I think reads the room better than the other. That's that's the key thing. But that can be taught. That can be taught. I wish Pepe didn't cost as much money as he did because we would view him differently. I think it's such a shame his Arsenal career. I, I don't think it's been well managed. It's and also, Clive, we'd have a lot of money left over. Yeah, there's that as well. But it's interesting. Oh, for crack, I was going to say there. It's um, thanks for that. Uh, I think it's. I think it's interesting with Pepe. I think somebody uh, Arteta said he's changed since the African Nations. I think he feels more important. I thought, yeah, no shit. He was feeling really important in the cup final. He was man of match in the cup final, and we dropped William on his head, right? So he needs to be made important. When Abamyang didn't play, he was the one that took the burden of the goal scoring. Wasn't the youngsters? They weren't ready yet. He needs to be made to feel important. I thought, well, how long? Was, why is it taking us so long to work this out? Make him feel important. Make him feel part of it. Make sure he plays to the rhythm of the Arsenal team that's playing today, and let's see what happens. If he doesn't work for us, he's he's playing enough minutes to get sold. It's not a problem. We'll get some money back. But while he's here, let's invest in him. Let's invest. I'm a big believer in this. Invest in him, make him feel part of it, and see what you get. It's too important. It's too important for me. We're so close. It's too important to have him sitting there stale. I totally agree. Here's what's tricky about a player like Pepe. First of all, him. He's tricky. But... Pepe is a player who, on his day, is as good as any player we have. He is as good as Saka. He is as good as Martinelli or Smith-Rowe. He is certainly as good as Lacazette. He's as good as Odegaard. On his day, he is as talented and as good as any player we have. He can curl two into the far corner. He can score from a free kick. He can beat three men and provide a perfect assist to the penalty spot. The delta between his good performances and his bad performances is too wide. And the thing that makes Saka so special is Saka is sensational. And some days he's not. And when he's not sensational, you know what he is? He's just very good. There is not a huge delta between Saka's great games and Saka's not great games. They're pretty close. And so I think the challenge for Arteta is, you might say, let's pick Pepe against Liverpool. Let's pick Pepe against, you know, United. Because he can win you those games. You just don't know. And I think that's why he makes a really good sub in a way. Because like, You're rolling the dice, but substitutes are sometimes kind of a roll of the dice. From the start, you want that consistent level of performance. And I think these mercurial players are difficult. And I think what Arteta likes about someone like a Saka, which any coach would, is when you play Saka, you get a good game. You may not get his best game, but even if you get his worst game, it's a good game. And Pepe just has that big delta between them. And so in our minds, some of us think of Pepe and we see, we visualize his best capabilities. And some of us, when we visualize Pepe, we visualize his most frustrating aspects. And as a manager, that's the problem. Am I going to get one or am I going to get the other? So I do think he's important. I think that role is probably primarily as a sub down the, down the road. And like the thing you're seeing, because we don't play a lot of games the rest of the season, and it's mostly once a week, maybe we're only making two subs and maybe we're not making them till 75th or 80th minute. And I have no problem with that. The way you leverage having no cup football and no midweek football and having fewer games is you shrink the squad 
and you play the players you trust the longest. Now, having said that, Paul, I think Arteta gets a little meat on this bone at full time to have something to yell at his players about. And I think coaches like that, actually, quietly, deep down. They like they like to have something to yell at their players about. I'm not sure I love the way we finished the game. A little unlucky with the first goal. The way they get in behind a high line with 30 seconds left in the game and give me a heart attack, I did not appreciate that. I would like it if they not do that again. Now, the irony is because we dominated this game and didn't nick it, try to nick it 1-0, we got the second goal. Their goal doesn't matter, but I'm curious... You know, I was listening to the Arscast, and they said, you know, uh, Andrew said it didn't really take the the shine off the game for him. It didn't for me either, dominant performance, but it did annoy me. And and maybe even more than the goal, the late run in behind that had to be flagged offside did more. Now, we wound up chasing it down and I think stopping a chance. But, like, how do you feel about the way we played out those last few minutes? Because I, I definitely think Arteta will be latching onto that as as a teachable moment. Yeah, it needs some work. Uh, Ramsdale will be pissed and the defenders will be pissed off about it um now <clears throat> they may have their own implications in that moment but uh psychologically keeping having that kind of that fortress that mentality of clean sheets every game uh like we do pretty well on clean sheets defensively our record is strong there was no real reason to relax in this game and kind of give them a bit of a sniff and it just, it, it, we should have walked off that pitch feeling we controlled both ends of it. And we did for the most part, but you, you can't be dropping your guard. But hopefully what we take out of this, to your point, is it gives them a bit of a bollocking on dropping the guard, keeping them on their toes, uh, keeping them sharp. You don't want Stephen Bergwijn showing up on 93 minutes and scoring two fucking goals against you. Mm. Um you look at the Manchester City game, okay, we were down a man, but that we had enough players to defend that goal in the last seconds, the dying embers of that game. And it's something to learn, and it's something we need to learn before the run-in because there'll be a couple more games where the, uh, the, the result is decided in the last five minutes. So it, it's something to work on. I don't, I don't know that there's something there except... Um, being more uh, alert, more on our toes. What I did, what you don't want to do, on the other hand, is get having your team thinking too defensively. So it's a difficult balance. That's why that's why Antonio Conte likes experienced players because they read where the rat, not just in one half versus the other half, but minute to minute, play by play, moment to moment, they know where to be, what to do, what's required. And like our second half, we had maybe a five or 10 minute spell where we let the initiative go. But the rest of it, we kept going at them. Now, that's not something we were doing a season ago. Uh, It was pretty much it didn't matter who it was. If we were a goal up or so, certainly two goals, uh, much of the second half would be us taking the last 30 minutes as a bit of a breather, keeping our shape like we don't we've gone away from that. We're much more proactive in the second half. Even if we're a little bit more shape-oriented, it's not in the same ways it used to be. So the plus side is we're much more proactive. Like you think of the City game when we were down to 10 men. We were still going at them. It wasn't like other games like in the past where we were just uh, locking the door, holding on. Um, we were still playing football against City, and unfortunately it cost us a little bit with that that 
goal they got at the end. But it could have cost us if we just sat in and tried to take all that pressure. So it's experience, it's learning, it's balancing. At least we're trying to play football across 90 minutes and we just got to get a little smarter in some of these moments. And that's that's experience, not just age, but experience as a team, learning each other, learning how to manage a game while, while by not just sitting back and yeah. playing safe. Yeah, I mean, the, the big change, ironically, is now dominating games, having all the territory, right, ha- having teams push back, especially, you know, some of the weaker teams in the league, it changes the level of focus required because – for so long, I think we were very organized defensively and very focused on keeping teams out and transitioning. Now, you know, you're going to have to be a little more focused because you're doing less defending, Clive. Um, I, I want to finish by just sort of talking about the table and where we go from here, but that last, last, last passage of play where we give the ball away, it's a high line, they play in behind it, and thankfully it's offside. Like, am I crazy to think that that was just totally unacceptably naive and like that like more than the goal that was the thing that gave me heart palpitations or am i out of my mind there yeah you're out of your mind it okay, doesn't matter cool. we they we should have won we should have won that game three nil that's a three nil game for us and we just they got they got lucky with the nearly offside right so um just a toe away from you know being no goal so just just move on from that to be honest. all right fair enough so so can uh, i add one, one really quick point on it i would love it if you would yes um, I wonder if there was something significant about the fact that we kept Tierney back and pushed Smith Rowe, could have been Martinelli, up uh, and wide and had Chaka very clearly uh, spending his time as that attacking 8-10. Uh, in that Arteta talked about how we managed the transitions defensively and we used to defend by keeping our shape and being very passive uh, in our third and just basically waiting for them to cough up the ball by keeping our spaces narrow, etc. And now we have to defend in a very different way. We have to defend up the pitch. Arteta used to live in an arsenal that got ripped apart on the counter, and that's not going to happen anymore. In like that's why he built from the back. He talked about champions. Good Champions League teams have to be strong defensively, and I wonder if we'll keep seeing Tierney, much less the flying winger banging in crosses, though he still did an an amount of that, and much more a conventional shape with the fullbacks tucked in a little bit, where we're defending because we now have greater than 50% possession. We're 60, 70% against some of these teams. So it's a different defensive problem if we're going to keep that record clean. So I'll be interested to see if this is a semi-permanent switch with how we use Tierney. Yeah, I mean, it was a little different against Wolves. They play a back five. So, so, you know, maybe there's going to be changes depending on the opposition. Clive, I I do want to get to the most unpleasant part of the podcast, though. Are you ready for it? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Did you want to add before I get to the unpleasant part? No, no, no. I, I just, I don't. You think, know what it's about. You know what that? it's about. It's about Manchester City letting us down. It's all they do. Oh. Manchester City will let you down. That's what they do. They, they have decided to make their bogey team the one team I would like them to not have as a bogey team. And like, as I watch Spurs, the thing I realize is maybe actually we want Spurs playing weaker teams because when they have to break down defenses, they don't seem very good at it. When they can hit it long to Sun and Kane, those two can win them games out of nothing. And they did it again here. And so. That's actually maybe something for us to keep in mind when we have to play them. But um, 
it, it definitely turns the table on its head a little because the one thing that factored into my calculation of us should finish top four, in quotes, uh, TM, is them not beating Manchester City away, and they did. So it's it feels like a, a pretty big moment that now turns it back to a case where we probably have to go get something when we go to Spurs. No, no, not really. I think... Um, okay, good. The way... <laughs> warm, warm the cockles of my heart, please. <laughs> so, hey, look, it's disappointing. I thought, I thought City could at least get a draw. Do you know I mean? Because they had it. Yeah, Spurs. Spurs are very good at going away to see. I mean, they, they cost them a Champions League for God's sake. I mean, they just have no fear going there whatsoever. I know there's some grounds you just go to, and you just don't think you're going to get beat. And they they played a really good game. But the problem is for Spurs is that everybody saw it. Everybody watched it, including all the analysts at Burnley, who they're playing later in the week. And I don't think Burnley are going to have the amount of possession that Man City do. And we watched Burnley come to the Emirates, and they're pretty good at, at blocking that central zone and deep-line defence. And, yeah, let's see what happens, right? Every game is different. Um, it just sort of took the shine off Saturday for me a little bit. I'm sure many people listening, it took the shine off a little bit. But look at over the context of the whole season. They just lost three games on the trot against teams they should have beaten, and they beat the one team they sh- we thought they'd have no chance of beating. That's yeah. still three points out of 12. That's what it's all about. Three points out of 12. We just need to keep winning, keep doing our thing. Thursday against Wolves is obviously really important. The most important thing uh, is to not lose. I know it sounds a bit pragmatic, but to not lose. Then we go into a little bit of a, you know, we have got a period where we have three games in six days. And we're going to be loving Pepe, Lacazette and all those players in those games because no way our fours can play three games in six days. And so it's just a matter of keep accumulating points. The way we're playing has some repeatability to it. There's some nice things developing. Keep doing what we're doing and see where we end up. I'm, I'm pretty relaxed, mate, to be honest. Um, yeah. let, the, let the others stress because the way Spurs play, I don't think it's enough dimensions to it. Manchester United... Box of chocolates time. Not enough, you know, not enough repeatability and structures there. They're, some weeks they press, some weeks they don't. Individuals get hot, they're fine. Individuals get cold, they lose. So it's up to us, really, to. Um, in fact, the two best teams with the most repeatability, in a strange way, are Arsenal and Wolves. Yeah. You know, uh, they're the ones that are well structured. Wolves don't quite score enough. That could be their downfall. But the rest, we're not too sure what we're going to get. Yeah, and I mean, this Wolves game at home obviously feels so big in part because it it, it is, I mean, they're going to obviously be out for revenge and the whole, oh, we celebrated too much thing. And we, you know, I I think had to work really hard to, to beat them away, obviously down to 10 men. They're great defensively. They don't score a lot, as you said. I think it's, it's a very tight game. Then you get to play Watford, you get to play home to Leicester, who are literally setting records for the defensive ineptitude this season. So this is one, you know, really the one I, what I'd love, I'd love to know when our Spurs and Chelsea games are going to be rescheduled. Do any thought Clive on when they might give us that information? Because, you know, I'm sort of nervous that they're going to stare at that calendar and be like, be fun to put Arsenal away to Spurs at the very, very end of the season with top four on the line. (laughs) Yeah, it could happen. Um, and obviously, Chelsea are in a lot of competitions, and as are Spurs. So, well, sorry, they're the Cup, FA Cup. Yeah. And so they're probably waiting for 
something to shake up there before they rearrange. This is more Tim's thing than mine. I, I'm honestly, I'm much more concerned about how we play and our health and fitness, and then and making sure we have the right priorities in attacking areas. I, I'm, I generally feel, I know Spurs had a spectacular performance, but I generally feel we're better than them. You know, I generally do. I think we have more competent players in more areas of the pitch. It, um, you know what they have, Clive? It, it's interesting, right? It's a perfect study in in style versus talent, right? Because I think we are a better team than them. I think we play better football than them. I think they have two of, and certainly one of, the best players in the league in the most important part of the pitch. And that just gets them points they don't deserve at times, you know? It does, but I honestly, this is where I think we are really good. And I maybe, you know, our back line is is exceptional. If they're all fit and available, we can deal with what Spurs have to offer. We really can. It's how we transition through the pitch and and hurt them in the final third. Yep. That's going to be the thing. And Spurs being Spurs, they're going to fancy themselves. They're going to come and play us. Even against Brentford, both our goals are on the transition. So bring it on, Spurs. Fancy yep. yourselves. Give yourself bunches of flowers. Come on to us and, and we'll take you apart. Yeah, I like the sound of that. And uh, I think we can leave it there. I do want to mention Jack Wilshire going to uh, a Danish side Aarhus. Is that? Do we think that's how we pronounce that? That's Arhus how I pronounce it. In the middle okay. of the street. Yeah, Aarhus in the middle of the street. Uh, I like that, Paul. Good job. Um, I just stole it and made it mine. But yeah, no. Uh, so we wish Jack well, certainly. And and I think it'll be fun for any local fans there that will get to get to watch him play and see what he's all about uh, before he goes into coaching. So. We can leave it there. As a reminder, uh, we'll have a rewatch. We will have a midfielder manifesto with Adam Ravogi and uh, Scott Willis. That'll be coming up for patrons as well. So we'd love to have you over there. But again, if you can't do that side of it, just happy to have you on this side of it, wherever you are, as long as we're we're all able to connect and stay connected on what is becoming a very fun and anxiety-inducing journey this season. I'm I'm here for it, and I'm glad you're here for it with us. Paul's on Twitter, Paul's my pants. Thanks, Paul. Clive's on Twitter, Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Tim doing some uh, Big J journalism today, some fun interviews that he's getting to do, so you'll be seeing some of that from him shortly, but he'll be back on a future podcast as well. And uh, hope you're doing well. Hope you're enjoying this. we got midweek football this week, so we will stay frosty, as they say. We love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Wolves nil. Chapman, welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. 
Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.